My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. Today, for our first episode, I got to sit down with Travis McPherson. Now, Travis is the VP Corp Dev for NextGen Energy. And if you haven't heard of them, NextGen Energy is in the uranium space. They're the biggest and um, most successful uranium explorer in the world right now. They have the Aero Deposit in the Athabasca Basin here in Canada. They've had tremendous success. They're nearly a billion dollars market cap. So today, Travis and I, we talked about what it actually means to work in Corp Dev, what that role has entailed for him personally. We talked about the uranium market, um, changes going on in the space right now, catalysts that he believes is going to move the uranium price over the coming uh, year or so. We also, of course, talked about NextGen and their enormous aero deposit and the future for that. So if you're interested in exploration, uranium, or asymmetric opportunities in the metals and mining space, this episode is for you. Without further ado, let me introduce Travis McPherson. All right, Travis, thanks for joining us today and welcome to the show. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you, Jamie. Pleased to be here. All right, so Travis is the VP Corporate Development from NextGen Energy. And before I ask you anything about that, I want to start with a story. Actually, now... <laughs> Story happened about a year and a half ago, and I've never told you this, um, but you and I went for dinner with a mutual friend of ours who is an investment banker at one of the big Canadian banks here, and he'll remain anonymous for this story. And afterwards, we went for a couple of drinks, and our wives and girlfriends were there, and you ended up leaving and talking to some other people, and his wife was like, what? What is Travis's job exactly? Because <laughs> we're at the bar, and about 15 people came up and talked to you. And he was like, you know, it's hard to explain. He's kind of like a minor celebrity of the mining industry. His job is to know a lot of people, talk to them, uh, tell them about his company, and build those relationships. Uh, and I would say that's somewhat of an apt description from the outside. So I'm going to start with the question. If you meet someone at a party or a bar and they ask what you do, how would you actually describe that? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that's, uh, that's kind, f I guess, for uh, that person to say. Um, but yeah, it's not, it obviously doesn't encapture the entire thing. And I definitely don't consider myself a celebrity in the mining world <laughs> whatsoever. Um, but yeah, I mean, a big part of it is definitely uh, building relationships, both with, you know, everyone on the street, basically. So whether that's institutional investors, whether that's our bankers, whether that's our research analysts, whether that's you know, people that are just participating in the markets, um, retail investors, everything, basically. So just know everyone uh, that uh, we come in contact with, make sure everyone has a positive experience interacting with myself because I'm representing NextGen. Um, and then, so that's probably like, that's kind of like a 10% 10, 10 of the job. The other 90% um, is really... Um, kind of all encompassing with the business just because of Lee Courier is the CEO and founder of yep. Nation, uh has really exposed me to uh, the entire business and kind of taken me under the wing to, to show me and expose me to everything. So uh, like whether it's uh, drill, like say an exploration program gets proposed by our, our geological department, uh, Lee and myself and some of the other uh, non-geological people will go through it and they present it basically to as if they're presenting to a board, and we yep. go through hole by hole. Why is that there? What's the target? What are we trying to accomplish with each, each hole we drill? And the same goes for basically everything throughout the organization. That process oriented approach to uh, to the business. So, you know, uh, okay, we're doing a trade. Say we're looking at a trade off study. Okay, how much is that going to cost? What are we actually trying to do? Is that a need to have or a nice to have? Do we need it now, or is it so figuring out the right sequencing of events and and spending uh, throughout the lifespan of this company is something that we spend right. a lot of time on and figure out. So I I'm involved in all of that very heavily, and then kind of corporate strategy from a really high level, and then obviously managing all the 
traditional kind of corporate development type things like uh, any M&A type uh, behind the scenes stuff that needs to go on, database management, yep. uh, CAs, all that kind of stuff. And so for those who don't know, NextGen Energy is a uranium exploration company with projects in the Athabasca Basin here in Canada? Correct. Yep, yep. And how long have you been there for now? Uh, joined in uh, like mid-2014. So about four years, three and a half years, four half years. years. Yeah. So I was thinking back uh, in preparation for this about when you and I met, um, and that would have been just before, maybe six months to a year before. Yeah, probably you a year. started maybe. with yeah. uh, with NextGen. And we got introduced through a mutual friend uh, because we were both doing essentially writing and research and analysis in the mining industry, mm. looking at different companies, and I ended up... I ended up going and working with a gold company who I'd written extensively about and gotten to know, and you ended up with a uranium company. Yeah, um, kind of the same process of how I got there, I guess, as you. So you got there almost exactly the right time uh, for NextGen, right? So hmm. what stage was NextGen at when you entered the company? Because there was only a handful of staff at that point, am I right? And Yep, yeah, exactly. So um, at that time... Um, you know, they made the official discovery of what's, what what is called the Aero Deposit now, which is today kind of four years post-discovery. It's the largest uh, global resource that's undeveloped of high-grade uranium, and it's been independently verified as being the lo- largest, lowest-cost uranium. It will be the lowest, largest-cost uranium mine in the world, producing about 20 to 25 percent of global supply from this one mine. Um, so hugely strategic. But back in 2014... There was uh, when I joined. It was about uh, just before before the thirtieth hole had been drilled on the project. Yeah. Um, but I basically followed the company since uh, even previous to discovery, which was in February twenty fourteen. So what what drew you to NextGen as opposed to some of the other uranium explorers that were having at the time similar success in the basin? Yeah, yeah. So I I didn't uh, I didn't know much about uranium at the time and. Uh, and that's but, something that no one does, and we're going to get into later in this conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, uh, so I, I got introduced to them through a, a mutual friend at the time and uh, and went and interviewed Lee as part of this, like what we were doing, writing about companies and analyzing them. Went and met Lee and just uh, really uh, over time kind of probably met with him six or seven times before uh, going up to site with them. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and I'd had some, I kind of had, I guess what I'd say, like red flags. I'd worked at a couple other companies and and uh, determined kind of, yeah, as part of that experience, you learn a lot from good times, but you learn, I think, even more from some bad experiences and and uh, yeah. had some bad experiences um, in the sense that the companies weren't necessarily run the most efficiently uh, or maybe used capital the best or uh, managed the markets the best. So I was really sensitive to that. and uh, And Lee was just kind of, exhibiting all the right attributes like right. all those things that i'd learned okay this is what you don't want to do well lee wasn't doing that and then going above that with right. the whole organization his vision for the organization because at the time it really was still a vision like it was it made a discovery market didn't really care uh, yep. you know it was a 30 million dollar company at the time and uh you know he's talking about this process 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 you know his background with first reserve looking at every single uranium company around the world asset uh, going to all of them specifically, looking at them, digging down, and he, you know, trusting what he was saying about the uranium business. If that's all true, and you are running this company the way you say you are, this is like a no brainer. And, yeah. and so, you know, over time, you know, you go in, talk to him, same things being said, it's clearly not lies. Uh, and then I went up to site in uh, late summer of 2014, got invited up there for uh, their first uh, kind of investor analyst tour. And uh, met met at the time the whole board, and uh, and Lee and spent a lot of time with them, and then uh, really got to know the board and really liked the board structure because the board of a public company is critical, obviously, and that's something yeah. that I probably underestimated prior to some of my other companies that had joined. Uh, didn't understand that how critical it is to have an independent, truly independent board and a board that is just there for governance and oversight, not day-to-day management you have the management that does that and yeah. so 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 you had this board which i met where none of them were too close very objective uh they were all kind of had a long really long-term vision for this said okay we've 
this is the asset. We've got it. So let's do this right. And everyone was kind of testing everyone. Question, good questions are being asked. Tough questions are being asked all the time. So I felt really comfortable in that setting. So is that something you'd seen in either companies you were covering or had previously worked for perhaps that sometimes there's perhaps a gray area between management and director and there's no sort of strong captain, I guess, at the head of the ship making the decisions and there's maybe sort of 100 cooks in the kitchen and trying to go back and forth on a company and yeah. and there's no clear direction on how to do it? Yeah, I would say, I mean, you see the full spectrum, right? Um, so, in my, yeah, in my experience, I've seen ones where it's like, you know, the worst of that, where there's like, or you could go all the way to the far side where it's basically one guy's show and it's just one guy and he's running everything and there's no objective process, what he says goes or she says goes. Yeah. And so I think, I think in my experience, you want that balance. You need to have the, you have to have the board. It just goes back to like, forget mining, just like, a business, you want to have independent people to look at what you are saying because you as management are very close to the business. Yep. So you have to have people there that can can kind of not be too close to the business on a day-to-day level so that when you propose things to them on an annual or semi-annual basis, say, hey, this is what this is what we're seeing in the market, this is what's going on, and this is the strategy, and this is why, this is how much it's going to cost, they say, okay, and they can ask questions from a high level. If they're, say, way too down in the deep end uh or vice versa they're so removed they're not even engaged it doesn't work that process doesn't work and then you basically will have a one-man show right okay so this was 2013 um at the time mining, 2014 2014 yeah sorry was mining was not a very sexy place to be at the time no and uranium was even worse Least sexiest. <laughs> yeah. probably so i mean what drew you to uranium in particular uh, after talking to Lee and sort of getting to know the space and, and you know, you could have gone into anything at that point. I know you'd worked with gold projects in the past as well. So uranium, totally new space, probably arguably the one of the least attractive commodities at the time. Mm. Now we've seen that start to turn around. So why? Why uranium? Yeah, I think uh, first and foremost, it actually wasn't about uranium. It was about the organization and whether mm-hmm. they were talking about uranium gold or jelly beans it didn't really matter to me because i knew if that process was undertaken in the way that it was being described and you had this board in that way yeah whether it was this asset or whether it was another asset of a different kind this group is going to be successful in in, in doing that yes. and so i wanted to be a part of that and then i mean obviously i fundamentally believed in uranium i didn't i would like it would be very hard to join that group no matter how good that process is if they're going after something that clearly isn't going to have a future. Yeah. You know, and that process that I described that they go through, it's not going to, it won't result in that situation anyway. So I would say being that kind of counter cyclical market, you know, coming into a company, I don't want to come into a company as a new employee, a new uh, partner in this business, essentially becoming a shareholder and everything mm-hmm. at a time where, you know, I think it's the top of the market. It doesn't make any sense. So right. now coming into the bottom, if I'm a long-term guy, I'm saying I'm willing to put a decade or more my whole career into this. Yep. Um, who cares if it's going to take, like, I didn't really have a view of whether it was going to take a year or five years for the market to turn in uranium. I just knew at some point it would. Okay. So at the height of when was the height of the uranium bull market? Was that 2012-ish? Or 2007, 2008. Yeah. So at the height, I think there was something like 500-plus uranium companies on the TSX and the TSXV. Uh, now we're down to, what, 50, something like that, 40? Yeah, I think the entire capitalization of all publicly listed uranium mining companies and exploration and everything is probably like $15 billion. So, like, you're talking about less than tech tax market cap. $15 billion. Now... <laughs> I was talking to a mutual friend of ours about this the other day, and he was saying of that uh, of that total market cap for the space, Cameco is like fifty percent of that or something. Yeah, like they're that. about five or six billion dollars. So yeah, so five or six. They're the, the leader 50, in or a, of the fifteen. Yeah, yeah. And you guys are just eight hundred million, nine hundred million dollars. Yeah, about a billion. Yeah. So two companies hold almost over half of over that. Half, uh, yeah. Of the market, and then there's the other forty odd that have what. Another $5 billion. So it's a tiny yeah. market right now. Yeah, and like when you're talking about like when you go down into the exploration, like some of those other ones would be like uh, some of the Chinese 
companies and like a BHP even, yeah. which has uranium. So, uh, but yeah, there's, you know, let's put it this way. When, when an investor, and we hear this a lot, when an investor looks at the uranium space, they go and they're sitting in the U.S. and they go, okay, it's time. I want to invest in uranium. They pull up Bloomberg. And there's two companies that right. are that have a market cap over a billion dollars that trade any decent dollar volume. Yep. Us and Cameco. Yep. Huh. And I mean obviously Cameco is a producing uh, operation with multiple assets and you are still in the exploration stage. What's the what's the proposed timeline for uh, for Arrow and moving that forward? Yeah, I mean that you know like there's timelines to to kind of each gate, but in terms of the biggest unknown for us is time. Yeah, uh, and it's all related to how long does it take to permit uh, this mine right. and mill. But in terms of the stage we're at and kind of looking forward, we are we are exploration, but we're truly into development now. Mm-hmm. So, so obviously, what does that entail? At this point. Yeah, so we're doing a PFS yep. uh, late Q3, early Q4 this year, which will have an updated resource using about another 80,000 meters of drill core data over 2017 and the winter 2018. Yep. Um, uh, and then we're also going to be doing a program this summer, which some of that data will feed in, about half of that will feed into the into the PFS and, and further engineering studies like some of the geotech, hydrogeological work we're doing. And then there's another part, which is exploration, where we're because believe it or not, Arrow's had over about 230 kilometers of drill core put into it. Okay. Yeah. And these are, like, this isn't like a copper deposit, right? Like, these things are pretty tight. Like, there's um, about $10 billion worth of material held within 400,000 tons of rock. So it's, like, very, very small volumes because the grades are so incredibly high. Right. Can you put, you did this for me once before. Can you put that in terms of gold? What would it, because... We're going to talk about this in a second, but I think people have a hard time wrapping their head around uranium. The value, yeah. Picturing that. So what would that be as a... Well, first, what is the what are the grades you're looking at in uranium, and then how does that translate to gold, which people might have a better understanding of? Yeah. So, I mean, we have... Um, our global average grade is around 2.5%, but we have a high-grade core uh, regarding the grade. So when you're talking about those types of grade, like 2.5%, so the global average across the entire deposit, including the high-grade, low-grade, everything, that is around uh, like 60 grams per ton gold. 60. 60 grams. Six zero. Six zero. And will this be an open pit or an underground mine? Underground mine, and it's actually yeah. tiny, tiny little mine. Like you're talking about, uh, about f- the PEA was about 1,440 tons per day. Okay. <laughs> That's it. And it produces around 20 to 25% of global uranium. So a quarter of all uranium consumed on planet Earth will come from a 1,440-ton-per-day mine up in northern Canada. So to put that into perspective, 60 grams per ton gold. I mean, an underground gold mine tends to be 5 to 7 grams per yeah. ton gold. Yeah. So this is an order of magnitude better than an average profitable mine. Yeah. Well, let's put it this way. Like, if you saw a really good, like, some of the best copper deposits in the world that yeah. are getting drilled off, like, say, Kamoa in Congo, you know, they might get intercepts of, say, 20 meters of 4% copper, right? That would be great. That's a really, that's a high-grade, crazy, world-class hole. Uh, For us, on a copper equivalent, we're talking about, we've hit holes of, like, 70 meters of over almost 200% copper. (laughs) So it's, like... Much more value, two hundred percent. Yeah, two hundred percent copper. So it doesn't even like mathematically it's, work. Yeah, you can't even. I can't even visualize what that would look like. It's just like a tube of copper. So what's what does your core look like when it comes out of the ground? So high grade uh, uranium core. I mean, first thing because we are in the basement rock, it's extremely competent, which is yeah. unusual in uranium because the uranium f- uh, mineralizing events that occur are so destructive when you get into these grades. Yes. Okay. So they just blast the rock typically, and so. In other areas of other deposits, you might see, like, it's always black. It's, like, really black. Yeah, yeah. And, but it will usually be, like, just destroyed. Like, it'll look like, you know. Fragmented. And like, kind of like yeah. asphalt that's been, like, all. Co- but for us, so we, it's, we it's actually. It's very structurally destroyed. It's like, I, yeah, I see, yeah. But you can, for us, you can hold a whole piece of core that's just consistent. And it'll be, like, running 70%, 70% uranium. Is there any safety concerns with having, uh, you know, that high grade core coming out for your drillers? Do they have to take 
precautions and yeah, protective equipment? Yeah, or? I mean, there's uh, Canada is probably a world leader in terms of, um, you know, because we have a deep, deep history of uranium mining, especially, obviously, in Saskatchewan. And so you basically everyone wears dosometers, which basically measure kind of exposure, general exposure. Yeah. But then the big thing really is just keeping everything segregated and hygiene. So you just want to make sure there's we have three different zones, like a hot zone moving towards a cold zone. So there's no contamination. It's really about that contamination. You don't want to, like, say, go from cutting core, give your hands a quick wash and then go eat food. Yep. Right. So it's just about separating all of those. And then, yeah, monitoring dosometer levels and everything. And then as we progress into development and if we, you know, build the project, build a mill, you know, obviously those those uh, measures go up each step you go. And as you produce and actually refine uh, the product, those will go up. But it's very well understood. And and I would say Canada yeah, is the leader in in that field. And um, I think the uranium mines in Canada are generally accepted as the world's safest mines. Yeah. Huh. Now, I mean, I'm trying to think of something to compare it to. I guess the Athabasca Basin would be comparable to the sort of Witswaterstand or the Abitibi of gold, like a whole district that is what I assume arguably the most valuable uranium district in the world. Yeah, yeah. People call it kind of the Saudi Arabia of uranium. Yeah. There's nowhere else like... How does it compare to Kazakhstan, which is probably, I think, the other biggest producer? Yeah, so Kazakhstan's a very large producer, but it's a completely different setting. So... They have they don't have very large individual mines like Canada has a few very yeah. large mines like you have Cigar Lake at almost twenty million pounds MacArthur River before it shut down kind of same level you have ours which you're t- we're talking about twenty five million pounds a year these are big big projects in Kazakhstan you're talking about kind of the biggest would probably be like seven or eight million pounds a year maybe ten at tops and they're uh, ISL so in situ leaching so their grades are significantly lower like you're I talking see. about okay. mining. Like a high-grade one there might be like 0.2% uranium. Compared to 2%. Compared to 2% or compared to 20%, which we have about 60% of our deposits is almost 20%. So it's it's a completely different different game, but they do – Kazakhstan does produce a lot of uranium from those for sure. So uranium's kind of been the unloved stepchild of the market for a long time, Uh, but – Talking to yourself and talking to a few other people, it sounds like you know globally things are changing, uh, and there's some catalysts occurring right now that could potentially sort of spike the value of uranium. Um, now I say this with a grain of salt because there's been people that have been pounding the uranium table for ten years, saying it's it's any it's going to turn around at any moment essentially. But you know, what are some things that you see happening right now in the space and? and talking to buyers and talking to you know other people in the industry that you think are going to start turning the price of uranium around over the coming year or so. Yeah, so I think you've there's a few things. One is like since the the disaster that happened in Fukushima it's been, you know, seven and a half years now. Yep. So just that amount of time passing uh, where you have say Japan which came Basically, the whole world after that, and rightly so, said, "Okay, hold on, let's put the brakes on. Let's put the brakes on everything, and let's just look at these things, make sure they're safe." And that, of course, just takes time. And so, it's always just been this time thing. Nothing fundamentally has really changed. The growth of the industry, demand-wise, is still pretty constant, like two to three percent on an annual basis for the next, say, twenty years at least. But yeah, lots can increase that when you get to start talking about electric vehicles. And that sort of stuff, um, but you know the the industry is always driven from not even I would I would argue not even necessarily actual supply disruptions, but even perceptions of supply disruptions at material sources because you have unlike gold or copper, you have such a concentrated source of supply. Like you have mines that produce fifteen percent right. of global supply of this commodity. Right, like copper, you don't have that. Like, what's Escondida? Like four percent or three percent of the whole copper market. Yeah. So, how many producing mines would there be in uranium today? Would you say less uh, than a dozen? Obviously. Well, Kazakhstan probably has like twelve, maybe something okay. fifteen that they're producing. But then, of material size and scale, yeah, there'd be under twenty. Okay. Producing mines and like really that's concentrated to like the Canadian ones, like yeah. Cigar and MacArthur, and and so talking about these catalysts, you know, the world like. And I tell people this a lot, like you don't need to know a lot about uranium or anything to do with mining. It just goes back to economics 101. MacArthur River 
shut down. MacArthur River, prior to it shutting down. And this is in the basin as well, This right? is in... Yeah, it's a Cameco the, mine in the... Cameco predominantly basin. owned. They own 70% of it, and then they have some partners. Okay. Um, that was, prior to it shut down, the world's largest high-grade mine and the best the Western world has to offer. And they can't make money at today's prices, right? No one can make money at today's prices. So what is, what is the ballpark spot price right it's now? It's around right 21, 22 bucks okay. uh, a pound. But, you know, most stuff goes into contracts, and contracting is, is confidential between two parties. Generally speaking, it's a very opaque market, mm-hmm. very hard to, to get a read on. So you, you basically try to take – that's why understanding the cost structure of mines is, is important. So we're, we're kind of reaching a supply limit now with these mines shutting down, and I think that's something we should dig into a bit, the difference between spot price and – the long-term contracts mm. and how in this industry as opposed to gold or oil or pretty much anything else that spot price it doesn't really matter it's almost a pretend number because there's not an open market to, to actually trade uranium on so yeah to my understanding almost all the buyers are are uh, electrical utilities right and producers yeah. so worldwide or traders yeah and traders so yeah. and these these utilities enter into long-term contracts with miners and suppliers uh, that are on the order of what, about 10 years? Yep. So explain to us, if you can, the difference between the spot price and the long-term price and, and how that process generally works. Yeah. So, like, I mean, that that's even in and of itself, that question sh- it shows that it's it's really hard to understand because there is no long-term price. Right. That, that doesn't really exist. There is no... One long-term price so because even within a long-term contract, there's not a X dollars for ten. Well, years. there will be for specific contracts, but then you have hundreds of contracts all over the world yep. for different periods of time, different volumes, different delivery dates, everything. So you have the spot price, which is what everyone watches. It's what's reported widely <laughs> by trading firms like uh, that are out there that do that. Um, but really, in that market, you're talking about maybe it representing 15 percent of all the consumed uranium globally. And of that, probably half is just pieces of paper going back and forth between parties. And then the other half is probably actual pounds. And the spot spot market is there for a good reason. Like it's in the event that say, like the whole market wants, like in terms of fundamental users of uranium, yeah, you really have to understand what they want. So they're running a big nuclear plant that costs $15 billion to build. They need to keep those centrifuges running keep the plant going. Yep. Um, in order to do that, they obviously have to secure long-term supplies of stable, know it's coming into the plant, uranium, that they can enrich and convert into, into fuel bundles specific for their reactor. So uh, that's all they care about, really. Like price, obviously, it's ignorant. To, people like to say that price doesn't matter. Price does matter. Price always matters. But it's their, in, their sensitivity to it is a lot less than what a say gas plant would be it's somewhere what on the order of three to five percent of their costs yeah yeah like on an all-in basis when you're talking about yeah exactly it's probably two percent three percent so consistency of supply so all they care about is getting the uranium and knowing they're going to get it and so the why the spot market exists there is in the event that say you know like because the world is the where these guys get their and women like where these organizations get their uranium from is very risked whether it's technical risk or whether it's sovereign risk like you have people getting a lot of uranium from kazakhstan now say that's been a very stable source of supply for a very long time but say that changes which it could which it could could very easily say niger or say in canada where you have you know like the the mines there that exist there have flooded in the past or almost flooded and so you could have that situation uh, and so the spot market exists for, say, any of those little interim disruptions. So say they, they're expecting to get 5 million pounds one year, but then one quarter they get they don't have a million pounds that they thought they were going to get. Okay, we can go in the spot market right. and get it. But that kind of a, band-aid. a pretty small portion. Of That's the a tiny, tiny portion of the, even the spot market itself, What's that, that portion of it. Hmm. So okay. And then you get into the long-term contracting market, and that's the market that you know, can basically go to zero. If the whole world is on, is, is contracted and, and covered, uh, meaning all their requirements for all their reactors, they have all the uranium, they know where it's coming from. And generally they over cover themselves yep. to, to make sure that if there is any supply disruptions, they have more than they need. They'll have a, stockpile they have a bit of a reserve, stockpile. Yeah. yeah. Reserves. Um, and so they're, they're basically waiting for that. 
So they're waiting for what? For for like re- we all have to wait for the spot for, for the, the contract to run out for contracts then, yeah. to run through, and so they can be they can go to zero because if everyone has it, the uranium price can go to zero. On the flip side, it can basically it. go yeah. to. I mean, it went to one hundred forty dollars back in oh seven, and inflation adjusted terms call it almost two hundred dollars. Now, and you might not know this, but do are we seeing? Uh, these reserves and these supplies uh, dwindle recently and are we are we basically going to need to adjust the price and start the mines back up again or how how does that exist with the utilities right now yeah yeah i mean the uh there hasn't really been any material long-term contract signed since 2011 okay and even before that the big contracting cycle previously was kind of oh five late oh five to kind of oh eight then it kind of went away with the financial crisis obviously and then kind of came back a little bit in 10 and 11 yeah but really you're talking about 10-year contracts the big ones kind of ending in oh seven oh eight we're sitting here in 2018 10-year contracts so those are basically rolling off so you've seen that in the and in the in the interim you've had a bunch of mines shut down you've had miners saying they can't continue to actually operate at the price they're getting for this now you, you've explained this to me before, but let's go through it again. There's a so there's like primary sources and secondary sources, right? Yeah. Uranium and can you can you explain that to people a bit? And I think there's been in the past a misunderstanding of these secondary sources and how much uh, how much uranium these these utilities actually have access to and how that works. Yeah, yeah. So like primaries, obviously from mines, yep. and that's been in a deficit to to consumption for a really long time. There's not enough mines to supply the amount that the world consumes on an annual basis yep. by probably 25 or 30%. So that that makeup, that difference is being made up. It historically has been made up from a lot of places. Like, you know, Russia and the U.S. had a downblending of warheads. I think that ended in 2012, but that mm-hmm. was a big source of secondary supply that kind of came out of the blue. There was, um, you know, when reactors came down, there's uh, other sources. There's But generally the inventories... Like people always say like, oh, you know, the world must have a lot of inventories and they throw out these numbers. From our perspective, we haven't seen much in inventories being sold mm-hmm. into the market. And that's for a number of reasons. National security. Yes. Why would a country like China want to start to sell a strategic stockpile of uranium that they've got? They won't. They haven't yet. Why would they start now when they're con- constructing more nuclear power plants than they ever have yeah. on an annual basis to bring them online? You know, Japan, similarly, like they haven't been a major seller of uranium into the into the market. On the flip side, actually, they've been selling liquefied natural gas back into the spot market because they are bringing their reactors back online. So you have you have what's said in the market very definitively mm-hmm. by pundits in the market. Yeah. And then you have the facts. Well, something interesting about that. I mean, the sexy part of gold is the gold mining, right? Mm. But the sexy part of uranium is not the uranium mining, right? Like the people that go into that industry are nuclear scientists generally, and they're more interested in nuclear power and building the reactors. And so, like the end users, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But it sounds like the mining is for that industry as as a whole is kind of ignored, right? Because it makes up such a small part of the cost. So you don't have that that champion and that transparency that you receive in other industries or other other sectors in mining. Other sectors, yeah. Yeah, but I, I, I definitely wouldn't be blaming the utilities for that. I think it's the our side, the mining and exploration yeah. development. We need to get together and, and come up with a, a way to really – because the fundamentals are so strong for uranium. Mm-hmm. But if you go and ask someone right now, they'd probably tell you it's totally hooped. There's no chance it's coming back, and there's tons of supply. Anyone that kind of knows a little bit will tell you, oh, there's tons of supply out there and everything. Okay, well, well our question is simple. Where is it? Yeah. Who holds it? How much of it is mobile? No one can answer those questions. So how much of your job is just education? Because I would guess, I mean, 99% of, you know, retail investors know next to nothing about uranium. But even most funds, I would assume, do not have a uranium-specific person that is in any way knowledgeable, as they might be in gold or base metals <coughs> or, or something like that. Yeah, um, definitely. Like, I mean, because the asset that we have is very, very simple. Like, we're not talking about any new mining method, any cra- anything. Yeah. You know, there's there's nothing with it that people go, "Oh, wait, can you explain that again?" 
they kind of understand, okay, you're talking about going underground. It's a very small mine, super high grade, lowest cost in the world, and largest volume. Is it, volumes. Is it soft rock mining? Will you use some sort of continuous uh, uh, miner well, or is it drill and blast or what's the plan? Yeah, no, the, the PEA uh, states like long hole yep. stoping and transverse stoping in the high grade areas. Uh, but we're looking at all kind of innovative ways to speed up development drifts and things like that and shaft sinking with some of those continuous uh, miners that they have. But, yeah, the education part of it, so, like, say the average meeting, institutional meeting we go into, first question is, okay, yeah, tell us a little bit about the asset. We tell them. They go, okay, yeah, we get it. Like, it's the best. (laughs) Like, it's (laughs) undeniable, right? So if someone wants exposure to uranium, you guys are an obvious choice. Obvious choice. And, and, and again, it just goes back to that, like, even if they – I would argue they probably, when they – when they take a meeting with us for the first time they probably don't even know what anything about us but they just know okay there's two options of the size that we could actually theoretically invest in there's Cameco, we know them producing long history uh what's this next gen how are they a billion dollars i've never heard of them and then we go and tell them okay differences between us and the competitors our competitive advantages and then the next and that takes kind of 15 minutes it's really simple to go through and then they ask, okay, so tell me about the market because as far as I understand it, it's this, this, and this. And so the bulk majority of every meeting now is about the market. What's going on in the spot market? When is the spot market going to change? So it's about educating them that, okay, the spot market is actually pretty irrelevant. Obviously, it drives investor sentiment, yep. which is obviously important, uh, but f- not, not important from our side running a business or where we say would sell a lot of our material if it was in production today, but it's important from that driving of investor sentiment. Yeah. So, okay, I'm an investor. I'm a retail investor. I'm interested in getting exposure to uranium. I know Cameco is a producer. It's a ma- massive company, multi-billions of dollars. So I can see the appeal there. Very safe, right? Very, uh, you know, sure thing. Then you've got the juniors, the super juniors that, you know, they might have anywhere between a few tens of millions to probably not much more of a market cap. Mm-hmm. They're, they're looking for the next big discovery, either in the basin or somewhere else. Then you've got you guys, which is kind of, you're verging on a development play, right? So you're almost a billion dollars. You're about $900 million as of now. Um, why are investors choosing next gen as opposed to the safety of Cameco or the potential huge leverage of some tiny um, junior that's out to make a discovery. Yeah, um, I think the uh, it's kind of a balance in between the two, really. Like, I, I would say that the argument isn't so much like choose one or the other. Like, people often ask us, okay, like we are investing, say we're investing in Cameco. Who else should we own? We, you know, we heard your story. We say just buy them all. Like, yeah. <laughs> you should buy like a lot of these companies because. Because there's the, almost no commodity that when it runs, it runs like uranium. Because right? you just don't have that many doors for money to go through. There's not yeah. that many companies out there. But realistically, for an institution, there's no like we're as small as they can kind of get into because of right. the di- dollar volume. Like they can't go to like big institutions. Generalists can't go into exploration like tiny exploration companies just because the size of ticket they need to buy is the size of the whole company. So they yeah. can't do it. Um, so has that been? Primarily your bread and butter uh, in terms of investors and financing is these institutions that are looking for something, looking for exposure that's not Cameco, but obviously somewhere they can write a big enough check and get the volume they need to actually get in there. Yeah, yeah. And and not even like, okay, we did, you know, we don't want to be invested in Cameco. A lot of them, we have a lot of cross ownership where yeah. they own Cameco and they say, okay, yeah, what's next? Like, we've owned Cameco for a long time. We want to keep owning Cameco for a long time. Uh, but we want some more leverage maybe. And like we saw it back in November, 2016, when the spot price bottomed at like 1750, we got down to a low of about a dollar 50 from a high in August of around $2 80. Yeah. So we dropped a dollar a share by November with the spot price plummeting. Yeah. And then the spot price went up to 2650 from 1750 by kind of, uh, January. And we were up to $4 and 50 cents by mid February. So in say eight to ten weeks, we had gone from a dollar fifty to four fifty on a spot price move of seventeen to twenty seven. So we have the most leverage for yeah. sure because we've positioned ourselves in such a way that 
all the investors, like it's not reflected today, the investor demand that's out there for us because they're waiting to see the spot market. Mm-hmm. They need inve- institutional investors don't want dead for the generally speaking, like, like when you're talking about U S generalist investors, they don't want a lot of dead money. They don't, they're not going to take, they're not going to say, okay, we don't know if it's in six months or in five years, but we're willing to do it. There are ones that do that. And those mm-hmm. guys are those, those institutions, generally speaking, are investors in us. Uh, but the ones that we speak to, for example, they say, yeah, no, undeniably, this is the best project we'll probably ever see in mining. But they want I to get, get the that. right time. And they say, but can you tell me if in six months the spot price is going to be higher or lower? Yeah. And of course we can't. So it's kind of, it's like a, what's the expression? A rising tide floats all boats. I mean, people who want exposure to uranium, people who think that uranium price, the spot price is going to run, next gen is one of the best ways to get leverage to that. Yeah. I mean, you, I think you're already seeing it happen mm-hmm. with Cameco, where Cameco is, I think, the best performing base metal stock in Canada yeah. this year, year okay. to date. Really? So okay. I think you're seeing that investor demand coming into the sector currently and it's coming into cameco first so i actually think like some of our investors say oh well you you guys are underperforming cameco i said i think that's actually a really good thing because they are the natural leader right you know we go market times your size we go market to everyone that they're marketing to they say yeah no like we get it we got to buy cameco and now tell us about you and so it's always starting for that position cameco is the market leader and I get it. They're, you know, they've been in production. Yeah, as they should be. Yeah, yeah. they're there. They're the, you know, whatever it is, like call it the barrack of gold, right? Mm-hmm. Like if people want gold exposure, they're going to barrack first. Yeah. Or whatever in gold. So. But we're then, next. We're The point is we're the logical next step. Unlike gold, unlike copper, unlike any of these other commodities where it's like there's a million big companies before you get down to, say, a development stage company. There's not. It's Cameco and then us. Yep. And then the next one is basically uninvestable from an institutional perspective. Right, right. From any kind of meaningful scale because they trade maybe a million dollars a day where these guys need 5 to $10 million of volume a day in order to invest. Okay. So I want to switch track a little bit. So beyond Next Gen and Arrow, you guys also have something called ISO. Is ISO Energy, right? yep. So what is ISO Energy? So ISO Energy was uh, created back in 2016, I believe. Um, and and is that a publicly trading company? Yeah, it's a public yeah. company. So it and was you a, own 60% of it? We own yeah, about 65% of it, I think, now. Okay. And uh, it was a carve-out, basically. So we had uh, these really good assets that actually NextGen went public with originally. Yeah. But they were all in the eastern part of the basin. Uh, the flagship there was one called Radio. We had gone public with that project. It was right next door to Hathor. We acquired it prior to uh, Cameco and Rio Tinto battling it out for Hathor back in 2011. Okay. Um, and then that bidding process started getting going. We drilled about three 3,300 meters on that project. And then uh, we'd acquired all this 260,000 hectares in the southwestern part of the basin. And then, uh, and then about three months after these boulders and stuff were found in that part of the basin, uh, the discovery was made. Uh, at Fission's property, Fission and Alpha's property mm-hmm. called Triple R, which is right next door to our project. So we went over there. It was easier to raise money. We already had those projects. Went over there, raised a little bit of money, drilled some holes, and then uh, didn't really hit. We hit some good structure, uh, good alteration, and then we moved up to the Arrow target, which was a geophysical target, a walk-up target, um, and we uh, hit it on the first hole, and then obviously since then's history. But ISO Energy has... All these other all these eastern bas- the just the eastern basin ones because we were sitting there. They had Thorburn Lake, which had a bunch of holes that ended in mineralization in the basement rock because they were drilled historically and historically no one thought like this is the thing about Arrow. Nobody believed, including us, that you could get a deposit of over three hundred million pounds of high grade uranium sitting in the basement rock. They just thought, no, it's too constrained. Yeah, that's kind of the geological dogma of the basin would tell you, okay, no, you need unconformity. You have to be in the sandstone, whatever it is mm-hmm. in those areas. Obviously with arrow completely flipped it on its head. No, you can get these massive high grade. And because they're in the basement rock, which is very competent, doesn't have a lot of water inflow, very, very stable ground conditions. They're actually very economic to take out and very simple to take out extract, uh, and clean metallurgy as a result of less fluids traveling through the deposit, things like that. So a lot of ticks, in these basement deposits. Now, 
um, what we put into ISO Energy at the time had some of these where the previous owners of these projects were drilling vertical holes trying to touch the unconformity where the sandstone meets the basement rock. Yeah. They drilled into that, didn't get anything in that, finished the hole, say, 25 meters into the basement rock in mineralization. And that's where they found. But okay, but then yeah. they said, no, well, you know, that must be just coming from somewhere. It doesn't matter because you can't have uranium in the basement rock. So is there any exploration going to be done this summer on the ISO projects? Yeah, yeah. And ISO has done a really good job of, uh, of acquiring a bunch of other projects as well, some out of Cameco and some of the Japanese partners in the eastern Athabasca. So they've really beefed up that portfolio they have and um you know we're a big shareholder of it next gen is all of next gen's management board is a personal shareholders of that one um you know it's just those things are right now exploration uh, uranium is not a good sector to be in still even though you have all these things that are so obviously bullish but people because there's been a couple head fakes in the market where you've seen okay kazakhstan back in 2016 announced a cut spot price ran up then it came down slowly then you had kind of late last year, same thing, and then it kind of came down slowly. This time's different, though, because you have the world's best, largest mine shutting down, or it's shut down now, and you have Cameco has to go into the spot market and buy yep. a lot of material, and that spot market is not very thick. It's a thin market. Good. So it's a pretty unique opportunity for people who are paying attention. Um, yeah, it doesn't trade know, a lot. I had a friend say to me the other day, so everyone in mining talks about, you know, buying counter-cyclical, uh, you know, buying when it's low, selling when it's high, and almost no one does it. And <clears throat> he made the point, he's like, you know, buying low and selling high, it doesn't count when <clears throat> everybody thinks a metal or a, a commodity is going to rise, because then that it's, 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 priced it's in. already priced in. He's like, buying low really means when people hate that commodity, when funds won't look at it, when no one wants to run a company. And uranium's kind of in that ballpark now that people hate it. Hmm. Uh, or they're or they're convinced that there will never be a uranium market again, and I mean I'm of the opinion that that's not true. It's basically bullshit. And yeah. uh, you know now is probably the time if you're if you're ever going to get into uranium to start looking at it now. Yeah, exactly. And I think and that's been tw- largely the basis of your career in a lot of times. Yeah, I mean 2016 when that spot price bottomed at that price, I can tell you I was, that was the moment that you kind of hear about in movies and stuff where it's like literally everyone I spoke to said, Oh, uranium there's, I heard there's never going to be another nuclear power plant built in the world yet 2016 and 2017 from a demand perspective were the two best years of nuclear growth in the world in the preceding 25 years. Okay. So there's just really misinformation in the market that you just have to like, it just goes back to the old thing, like motives and why, why don't people know about nuclear? Why do people think it's glowing fish? Well, think about watching The Simpsons, okay? Right. Like the three-eyed fish. Yeah, the three-eyed whatever, fish. Yeah. Mr. Burns glowing green. You know the oil, the the industry that has a real uh, historically has really wanted to crush a cheap, carbon-free, almost infinite source of energy. Who would that be? The oil yeah, and gas, of course. And who has the highest lobbying power in the U.S. and probably the world? oil yeah, and gas historically so they've there this misinformation campaign has gone on for so long it's generational when even like my family when i told them they're going in uranium they're like oh my god be careful like <laughs> what will you know blah 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 yeah and uh you know now now you know you just see the people that are the people that are investing in uranium and in nuclear are some of the smartest people in the world you talk about bill gates investing huge into nuclear really nuclear uh new scale new generation nuclear i did not know that because nuclear power as it sits today hasn't really changed materially since basically the 60s it's the same kind of technology is there research going on in that or is there, there hasn't been because yeah. again the oil and gas industry had basically crushed any of yeah. the funding but the or you know whatever i won't blame the oil and gas industry someone some party that was interested in doing this was heavily lobbied for heavily lobbied yeah. to get the funding cut from it for a bunch of reasons, but really now so you have private interest doing it. So you have this big group Terra Power out of Seattle, which is funded by Bill Gates, developing new generation. So you're talking about a lot smaller reactors where it doesn't cost twenty billion dollars and take fifteen years in the Western world to build one. You know you can build it maybe it costs two billion dollars and each municipality has it and they actually use it to back up say wind and solar power 
right? So that's what the UK is talking about. They're developing these, and these things are kind of coming in the next kind of five to ten years. These new generation ones that are much smaller, uh, that that I think will completely change the world, and it's the only way you can get the world off carbon. The only way might not be the ultimate kind of source ultimately long term, but the but transition, it could be the, the stopgap for the next twenty five years or, or fifty years, yeah. whatever. I mean, the the reality is you just like no matter how fast anyone thinks like us sitting here in Vancouver or sitting in San Francisco or sitting in New York, no matter how fast you think the world can change from carbon to non-carbon to wind and solar, it, w- it won't be that that transition won't happen. Baton passing each plant over to those right. two things. Right? right. It just won't. No matter what battery technology comes up, it doesn't matter. You're just talking about the scale nuclear is so dense in terms of the power generation it creates and it's the only one that's actually carbon free so if anyone wants to learn more about next gen or, or you personally where should they have a look uh www.nextgenenergy.ca it's probably the best place for our listeners any messages on next gen or uranium it's really hard to get good information in the uranium business i think the iea does an okay job of of uh or not an okay job a good job of describing kind of the electricity what's going on in electricity globally mm-hmm. um i would just say just like anything take it with a grain of, take everything with a grain of salt and do your own work figure it out for yourself if it doesn't make sense don't just take what people say because in this business more than any business i've seen people speak very very factually uh and then you know the next day something happens that is completely counterintuitive to these facts that they had so i'd say just look at things uh, and and be very very diligent about them. All right, I think that's a good note to end on. Thanks for taking the time today, Travis. Thanks, Jamie. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.